I would invite you to turn in your Bibles this evening to the book of Ecclesiastes. We continue. I got a little ahead of myself thinking I could get to verse 19, and I realized I can only get to verse 18. So I ask for your sincerest apologies. I plead with you to forgive me. (laughs) It's just like sections in the book of Revelation as you begin to dig and dig and dig, and there are times where you just have to to wait a little bit. Ecclesiastes chapter 7, I'll be reading verses 13 through 18. Ecclesiastes 7 verses 13 through 18. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. In my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. Be not overly righteous. And do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand. For the one who fears God shall come out from both of them. Thus far the reading of God's word, let me pray now for the blessing of the preaching of it. Lord, Teach us how to be wise, to be shrewd, yet innocent, to be keen in our hearing and slow in our speaking. May we sit like Mary at your feet, that we might glean from your word and understanding, not just of the principles found within, but that we would even meet with you, O Lord, the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. Draw us to yourself tonight. Even, Lord, give us supernatural wisdom and understanding that we might hear and so be more and more unlike you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I love statements like these, this sort of shockers. I had a professor uh, in seminary, Richard Pratt, for one class, and Richard Pratt was notorious for saying things purely for the sake of shock. And this is what he would say. You guys are over here. I want to get you here, so I'm going to teach from over here. Parents, maybe you've done this before. You've said something to get your kids' attention, and they look at you. I can't believe you just said that. And then, of course, you begin to nuance it, and you explain the meaning. Such are statements like these. (laughs) Don't be overly righteous. Well, I can do that. (laughs) Finally, a biblical exhortation that I am, I am really doing a good job of. Somewhere right in the middle, but that's not Solomon's point. Lest you think, I'm doing okay. In fact, what Solomon is endeavoring to help us become are people unlike Job's friends who thought they had it figured out who thought they had discovered the remedy, the algorithm for the relationship 
between the actions of men and the sovereignty and providence of God. And let me tell you, Job's friends were not the first and not the last to get it wrong. In fact, there are many doctrines of free will and the relationship between man's actions and God's sovereign will that go way far afield. Men like Clark Pinnock, who proposed something called the openness of God theology, which lent to this idea, God knows everything but has not decreed everything. And even Arminians would say, that's impossible. Logically speaking, if God knows, it means that he has ordained. But then Presbyterians go one step further and say, God has ordained everything that comes to pass. That is to say, we're going to err on the side of God does that. He has decreed it. But despite God's decrees and because of his decrees, we come to a point in our lives where we must say, if God has said it, there's no unsaying it. If he has done it, there's no undoing it. If God has made it crooked, guess what? You can't make it straight. Or the inverse, if God has made it straight, you can't make it crooked. How are we to look at the providence of God and to live in that providence as faithful, wise worshipers? That's what I want to talk about this evening, which is why I didn't put a summary or synopsis in the bulletin. It just would have been too long. I just couldn't get it. I couldn't figure it out. Um, I'm glad I sort of figured it out by this evening But I want to open up, and there's two points that I want to make from this text, verses 13 through 18. The first, clear eyes, clear eyes, and then second, a content heart. A content heart. Let's look at the first point, clear eyes. In fact, that is the exhortation that we find here in verse 13. It is to consider. Children, I know... Many of you have been to the museum with your parents. Uh, When I grew up in Georgia, we would sometimes go to the High Museum of Art. And I was not really interested in art until we went to see the exhibit called The Five Rings. And The Five Rings were five particular themes, and one of them was love and romance. And it was at just the right time in my life where I began to become aware of the members of the opposite sex, And so I was fascinated with all things love and romance. And I remember the sculptures, some of which were probably not helpful to a young man who was interested in love and romance. Many of them were informative. Some of them were stunning in their beauty and the conveyance of undying affection. And I remember being there. And my parents would just stand there and they'd read the plaque and they'd look at the piece of art. And they'd look at the plaque again and then they'd look at the piece of art. And I'm saying, how are you doing this? How do you have the patience to stand here and just look? And it wasn't until I was older And I went to the Andrew Wyeth exhibit at the same museum. And I remember coming up on this country scene. And it's just this scene of a field with tire tracks going over the hill. And I began to just consider it and to look at it. And I thought, I wonder where those tracks continue to go. Do you know where they go? They go nowhere. (laughs) 
It's just a two-dimensional painting. But it is so, it was so engaging that I couldn't help but think of a world beyond the painting. I considered it. When we are to, when we are called to be Christ's disciples and to consider the work of God, we need to sit or stand or to think or and think for some time about the sovereignty and providence of God. In fact, much of growing up is time spent in consideration of the God who controls all things. We are to behold providence well. Not quickly, not in passing fashion, but well. Mothers, it's like you make dinner and you have cooked for an hour and a half and then your son comes down and he sits at the table and it's gone in two and a half minutes. And you look at him and go, you Philistine, slow down. Did it touch your tongue? Did it just go straight into your belly? Take your time. Consider the tastes, the flavors. I can remember in college, my uncle took me after my first and only good report card my freshman year in college. And he took me to this beautiful, exquisite French restaurant. He spared no expense. And as we're sitting there eating this delicious food, he starts to talk about the different ways in which you can engage in the various flavor profiles. And I'm thinking, you are such a snob. But he said, slow down. And I began to slow down. And he says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to take the food into your mouth. And as it engages with various spots on your tongue where you pick up on different flavors, right? Tell me what you're tasting. I'm like, this is so silly. And then I began to do it. And I realized, oh, there is complexity to the food made by a master. It's the same. We are to consider the work of God. We are to behold. We are to linger upon. We are to study the providence of God. We are to always be students and to receive well and to understand that the Lord is a master. You know, there's some... Gosh, I must be hungry. <laughs> there are some things you may read on the menu and go, I have no idea how these two things are going to coexist in a dish. I remember the first time I had a peanut butter, banana, and bacon sandwich. And I thought, uh-uh. And then I ate it and went, yes, may I please have another? Oftentimes, the decrees of God come to us and we look at it and go, I'm not sure how that's going to work. Or we receive it and go, no, this cannot be good. But one of the things that we need to consider when it comes to the providence of God is not just the thing, the providence, but the one who is in charge of it. In fact, our beholding and consideration and receiving the providence of God well really hinges upon not the content of his providence, not the event or the sorrow or the difficulty or even the good thing, the triumph, the joy, 
but the one who brings it. The one who brings it. How are we receptive to that? It's trust. To consider is to nurture a trusting heart. Now, what do we see when we consider? What are the things that you behold of God that give you reason and a multitude of evidence why you can say God is good? Well, what's the first one? Creation. That God made of nothing in the space of six days all that is seen and unseen. God did it. And not only that, but he came to us even in our rebellion and clothed us so that we might not be cast off or away. And he gave us a promise to destroy the enemy of the saints, Satan. And he's done that. And he, throughout covenant history, has shown all of these moments where he has spread before his people a feast, not of their own making, but of his own covenant faithfulness. One of the things that we lose when we are not students of the word is we lose the opportunity and the ability to consider the work of God. One such man who considered well the providence of God would be Joseph and Job. Job said, shall I accept good and not evil or bad times from the Lord? Joseph Quiet, non-complaining, even in the face of hard providence. God sees it all, but we see God. And what we know of him is good. And so to behold providence well begins by considering not just the work of God, that is what it is, but its infallibility and its unchangeable nature. In fact, there are times where the only thing that you can do is consider. Because you're helpless, you're powerless. We behold providence well. This is the first part about having clear eyes in terms of learning to see what God does. The second thing that I want to talk about under this point of having clear eyes is not just beholding providence, but receiving it. This is a far more difficult thing. And if our hearts are not... Tilled, the soil of our hearts is not tilled to receive providence well, we will bristle under it. We will shirk at it. We will say, I don't like this. So we consider, and then look at verse 14. In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, this is how you're to think. It's also from God. So whether it's easy or hard, Both of those things come to us from the same God. And God is not fickle. He does not change. He is consistent. And his fatherly affection and tender care towards his children. In Job chapter 9, Job said this to his wife, who said to her husband, Job, Curse God and die. This is what Job says. Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. Sorry, that's what she said. He responds in verse 10 of Job chapter 2. You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. He worshiped God despite his own leprous body. 
In fact, James in chapter 5 picks up on this and he says, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. And this is how Job was able to be steadfast in his unwavering affection and trust for the Lord. He did not seek to divine or figure out the invisible algorithm or algebra of why God did what he did or does what he does. You won't do it either. There's no way. Now, I know that mathematics for many of us is a great challenge. Anything past fractions or simple algebraic equations. How in the world do I balance this? How much more the infinite complexity of the plan of God that only he knows. Now, we are very much aware of our frailty. We are very much aware that there is a calculus that God knows that we do not know, that there is a plan that he knows that we do not know. And so the first word of advice that Solomon gives to us is this. Stop trying to straighten God's crooked providence. Now, crooked doesn't mean backwards or sinful. What it means is this. Kids, have you played Candyland? Ellie, I know you love Candyland. You know Candyland? And you're making great progress. You're, You're moving up that rainbow road. And then all of a sudden... You get one of those stinking treats, but the treat doesn't take you forward, it takes you backward, right? Unless you're playing the PC version and nothing ever takes you backwards. Parents, teach your children to be disappointed through board games. (laughs) And you get the lollipop, and a lollipop is good. Except when it takes you back and you're no longer in the lead, you're behind. And you learn the cold, hard lesson of You don't know what cards are coming up in the deck. And it feels like I'm not going to win the game. But then you get the double orange. And you skip 15 places ahead. You just don't know, do you? You absolutely do not know. But the natural human response in the face of a crooked path is to go, Come on, God, what are you doing? Or, hmm. I'm quitting, and you throw the board over, and you walk off. That is one of the ways to respond. In fact, that is one of the ways. It is that way of overt wickedness. Because the dilemma, we've talked about a dilemma already today, the dilemma for non-sovereign creatures is that we want to be in control. Can you imagine if you were the sovereign of the universe with the weaknesses and the personality that you have? If I were king, I would make a terrible king. The edicts that I would hand down would all be terrible. (laughs) They would be self-interesting. They would be for myself. But here is the glory of God's providence. All that God has decreed is to bring glory and honor to himself What makes that good is that God is infinitely righteous. And everything he has decreed for his children is of infinite good to you. Calvin, in his booklet, the golden booklet of the true Christian life, 
he talks about the providence of God towards saints as being a providence that often involves great suffering and misery. Because what the Lord is teaching you to do is to not build a treasure here on earth where moth and rust destroy, but in the life that is to come. Now, you can do that here, but you do so for the glory and honor of one, that is Christ. And so as we consider the work of God, the first challenge that comes to us is, have you ever seen the strong men? They get that big beam and they're they're bending it. You cannot do that with the providence of God, even if you feel like you are. You can't. It is beyond your control. This is what Job learned from God when God said, let me tell you about my sovereignty. And Job's mind went, he just dropped a bomb in Job's lap. And Job says, in light of all that God said to him, I'm out. I've got nothing to say. He, he closed his mouth. In fact, he didn't disclose it. He, as a sign of deference and humility, put his hand over his mouth. Instead, how are we to receive providence? When it is good, rejoice. When it is bad, rejoice. Because God isn't going to show you his cards. God has made, verse 14, the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. I have no idea what is going to happen at Reformation or in this nation or in the house that I now live in. Who's going to buy it after us? What's going to happen? What will happen with my children and my children's children? And there are ways to plan and prepare But do you think everyone in Thailand was planning on the tsunami in 2004? How many of you in 2020 thought, boy, sure wish a virus would come. And then all of a sudden, boom, right in the lap. And there are many in the church that had no idea how to respond. Your pastor was scrambling to figure out, what do we do? But do you know what that opportunity afforded us? to fix ourselves as a congregation firmly on the primary call of the church to call people to worship. Worship is the central call of the righteous, of all men, in fact. Now, Saul, the first king of Israel, was ultimately judged because of his bad response to the providence of God. Remember what Saul did and why the kingdom was taken away? Because he went to the witch of Endor, which is not the forest planet of Star Wars. That would be hilarious. (laughs) But he went to the witch and she raised Samuel. And Samuel shows up and he looks at Saul and says, this is bad. Saul engaging in the prophetic word of a demon, not Samuel, but the work of demons, endeavored to ascertain the future of the kingdom. This is an abomination to the Lord. Now, you know, we have Sister Cleo in the local, we used to have a local psychic that lived at the end of Laurel Lane where we live. They're not there anymore, I wonder why. It's not exactly a a legitimate career choice, is it? It's an abomination to the Lord. 
And the kingdom was stripped from Saul because instead of trusting the Lord and obeying him, he endeavored to reject God's sovereignty by taking the future into his hands. And God judged him for it, and he gave the crown to another. Now David's response in light of God's decree, when David sinned with Bathsheba and had her husband put to death by putting on the front lines of the battle. There's somebody at the door out there. You never know who's going to show up, do you? And so David, upon hearing, because of his disobedience, that the child that he and Bathsheba were expecting would die, what did David do? He fasted. He prayed. He fell on his face before the Lord and asked, Lord, if it be your will, please, please do not take this child. But what did God do? He was sure and true to his word, and that child did not survive. And when that child died and the news of it reached David, do you know what he did? He washed his face. He got up from mourning, and he went about the business of ruling the kingdom. He was not endeavoring to manipulate the future to go a end around the one who is sovereign, but to receive the providence of God. And that leads me to my second point, a content heart. This is where Solomon does the thing that Solomon does. He gives us a principle that on the surface of it feels strange. But when you begin to read it and pick it apart and understand it, it makes great sense. Now, verse 15, in my vain life, I have seen everything. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. This is the same thing that Asaph saw and spoke of in the Psalter. He saw the the preservation and the flourishing of the wicked, and it caused him distress until he went into the sanctuary of God and he discerned the true end of the wicked. Now, that is not the lesson that Solomon is teaching us predominantly. What he is saying is this. You have no idea what God is doing. We know what God will do in the final judgment. That's what Asaph talks about. But between that point of seeing the wicked flourish and the coming judgment of Christ Jesus at the end of the days, at the end of days, we don't know why God is doing all of this except that he's bringing glory to himself. And so Solomon then continues in his counsel and he says, "Don't be overly righteous." And don't be overly wicked. Now this is what he means. The Christian's default when it relates to the sovereignty of God and God's rule over things and the mystery of the future, this is how we respond. What can I do to assure myself a beneficial outcome? Children, let me bring it down. Not just children. This is how I had to bring it down to my level. <laughs> so, children, when I speak to you, you need to understand, as I'm preparing sermons, this is how I talk to myself. Explain it to me like a five-year-old, Joby. Okay, I'll explain it to you like a five-year-old. And this is what's happening. Kids, when you get in trouble, and you know that punishment is calling, all of a sudden, between the moment that the sentence has been handed down and the time when the sentence is supposed to be carried out, between those times, you're going, Dad, is there anything I can do? Can I help you? Mom, 
I love you. You're, you're so wonderful. Or your parents say, Jimmy can't come to the house this weekend. And then all of a sudden, you transform from this disobedient monster to the most agreeable child the world has ever seen. Why? Well, for some parents, it works. <laughs> right? Well, boy, he really is repentant. No, he's not. He's just trying to get you to reverse your edict. He's trying to get you, or she, not to leave the young ladies out, to try to get you to change what you have said. And sometimes it works. Solomon is saying that righteousness for self-interested sake, for the sake of trying to conjole or compel God to do what you want him to do, is not righteousness. This is what Job's friends were rebuking him for. Remember? They said, Job, Job, there's something you've done. The reason why God is dealing harshly with you is because you have done something wrong. And Job says to them, what? What have I done? Now, was Job sinless? No. Was he blameless? Yes. There was nothing that Job had done that warranted such Hard providence. In fact, we know from the book of Job that God is the author of his misery. God allowed and used Satan in his hand to bring trial and tribulation against Job. But God is the author of all that. God allowed it in his sovereignty. And the righteous or the the unrighteous, the extreme righteous position is... Oh man, I've got to figure out what I did to undo it like you're undoing some hex or curse. Do you understand what I'm saying? Do not be overly righteous means do not try to get on God's good side in order to have a more favorable future. Because you're not doing it for his glory, you're doing it for your own comfort. Now, that does not mean that you're not to be obedient, that you ought not be consumed with the glory and honor of God, that you're not to be righteous and to look at God's law and say, Lord, make me holy. But why do we pursue holiness and wisdom? It is not to be like God, but it is to be faithful servants of God. I mean, we're reminded of that this morning. Who is worthy to take and open the scrolls? Well, I helped several old ladies across the street this week. Lord, if you would just give me some access into your throne room planning, that would be great so that I can go back to my normal scoundrel self next week, but with a little extra knowledge of what's coming. It's, this, is the, this is superstition, plain and simple. But not only are we called not to seek to coerce God, But we're also called not to simply cast off his lordship over our lives. Don't be overly righteous and also don't be overly wicked. And this is often what happens. Children, it's the other side of the coin. Mom and dad say, this is the way it's going to be. And you can either seek to butter them up or you can say, I'm out. I'm out of here. Peace. I'll catch you when I'm an adult. And then, obviously, they learn their lesson when they have kids. And it is so, I cannot wait. I learned that lesson. And my mom always says, and continues to say, you're paying for your raising, aren't you? And I say, yes, I am. (laughs) 
I was a stinker. I remember one time I was acting up and my mom came to me and she endeavored to apply the rod of education to the seat of learning or whatever you say it. And she smacked me as hard as she could and I turned around and I laughed at her. Let me encourage you never to laugh at your mothers. And she said to me, son, just wait until your father gets home. And I mean, the heat came into my ears. I knew there are some other people standing outside the door. This is just, keep them coming. (laughs) I knew what was about to happen. Now, the, the overly righteous response would be what I said earlier. Oh, mom, Please, I I love you to try to sway her decree. Just wait till your father gets home. But this is what I did instead. I sat in my bed and I thought, if I open that window, there's a dogwood tree just outside, right below the, the roof. I can shimmy off the roof onto the dog tree and get way into the woods before my dad ever gets home. I was going to run away. I didn't have the courage to actually do that. This is the overtly wicked response. That is, to run from and refuse the providence of God in rebellion. But guess what? Neither one of those approaches makes straight what God has made crooked. Neither of them get you any further down the road of receiving well the providence of God. And that's why he says in verse 18, which is why I stopped there... It is good that you should take hold of this. That is what I just said. Take hold of verses 13 through 17 and that you withhold not your hand from that thing. He wants you to take it with both hands and live in light of the immutable, which just means unchangeable, sovereignty of God. And love it. Don't just take it to heart. But live in the beauty of it. Because guess what? If God is not upon the throne, who is? In fact, righteousness that is not done for the glory of God is just as wicked as wickedness for the rejection of the glory of God. Instead, for the one who fears God shall come out from them both. That is, both of these extremes. Seek righteousness for righteousness' sake, for the glory of Christ. And understand that there are times where God is bringing hard providence in your life to nurture righteousness, not false righteousness or wickedness, but sincere righteousness avoid the extremes instead what is wisdom wisdom is to look at the providence of god and ask this question all right what can i change in righteousness and what can i not truly righteous to what degree of planning that is wise planning can provide some alleviation from this predicament and at some point you just realize This is it. This is it. This is the providence of God. 
whether it's the loss of a job, of a loved one, hardship in life, whatever it may be, there are things that come upon us that we absolutely have no power to control. All we can do is say, whate'er my God ordains is right. Judge based upon what God has shown you, which means this, that above all else, the Christian is to be a man or woman of the word. This and this alone we know for certain. We don't even know the sun's going to rise. You know what the great lie in all of COVID was? It is the lie in the myth of safety. Says who? Who? Listen, you could come home from getting the vaccine and get hit by a car. There's no vaccine for that. And it's anything, right? It's not just COVID. But COVID has revealed a culture, a system where people have rejected the sovereignty of God. And when you reject the sovereignty of God, guess what has to be in your system? Some sovereign power. Whether it is your health care provider or yourself. And as soon as you unseat in your mind and in your heart God from the center of your life, from the throne, someone has to go there. And let me tell you, it shouldn't be you. It shouldn't be anyone else. It shouldn't be your kids or your spouse. It must only be Christ. And as sure as we are about many things, this this is our standard. It helps us understand at the very root why God does what he does. He endeavors to bring glory and honor to the Son through the redemption of sinners by the building of his kingdom. And sometimes that means the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Let me put it this way. Don't pray for easier times. Pray that you will be faithful even in the hard times. And that by God's grace, he will use us to glorify himself among the nations.